Well, once again, I want to say that it is a joy for me to worship with you this morning. I've been eagerly looking forward to this opportunity to be with you and to have my family worship with you. Um, This is a church um, that I have respected and appreciated uh, for a long time. Um, Over the past decade, uh, my friendship with Pastor Brett has been one of God's greatest encouragements uh, to me. Um, We met when uh, my oldest daughter uh, was on a soccer team that Brett coached in first grade, and that was about 11 years ago, give or take. Um, And since then, um, I have been so appreciative of of Brett and of this church. Um, He and and Jen have come and worshipped with us uh, uh, several times at Little Rock uh, during Brett's sabbatical, and that's been a joy for us. You might find this interesting, though, that Brett is not my only personal connection to your church. Um, I grew up at First Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Renton, Washington, and that's where the Statima family was members back in the 80s, 90s. I don't know quite how long that lasted, but we had a program for young boys called Stockade, and Dave was one of the leaders in that program, and I'm sure that Elaine was one of my Sunday school teachers at some point in my many years there, and so you'll forgive me if I call them Ranger Dave and Mrs. Statima at some point during uh, our time together this morning, but that's how I grew up knowing them, and I wouldn't have wanted as a young child to say anything other than that. I am thankful to be here uh, with you all this morning. Well, as a sophomore in high school, I signed up for my first honors class. And on my first day of that class, the teacher presented a syllabus, which was unlike anything I had ever seen before. Do you know what syllabus day is like when the teachers pass out the syllabus and you see all the work that is to come for you in the quarter or semester ahead? The syllabus was different because I saw that there would be no regular homework assignments, which I thought was fantastic. And there would also be no tests. And I began to wonder if I was taking classes at the Evergreen State College, but I was not. Instead, our grades would be entirely determined by what the teacher called a portfolio. And and this was a collection of nine different English literature, and language arts projects. And there would be one project to do every month, and we were allowed to do them in any order that we wished. One of the assignments was related to American poetry. And we were assigned to memorize a poem and to recite it in front of the class and to write a literary analysis of the poem. And I chose The Road Not Taken, by Robert Frost. And this poem tells the story of a traveler who faced the choice of which road to go down during his journey. Now, Robert Frost is is no friend of, of biblical Christianity, but his poem correctly identifies that there are two roads in life. And in the final verse of the poem, he says this, I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. 
And that has made all the difference. Two roads diverged. One less traveled than the other. And the choice of which road to travel made all the difference. Psalm 1 identifies these two roads for us. The road of righteousness and the way of the wicked, which leads to God's judgment. And one of these roads leads to abundant enjoyment of God's blessings, and the other leads to experiencing his judgment. The the main thing that I want to see with you in this brief psalm this morning is that God blesses his people when they joyfully submit to his word. God blesses his people when they joyfully walk in submission and in obedience to his word. And I think that this is an important word for believers today. I think the pressure that many Christians feel to walk in step with the world around them is intense. You may have wondered if you can keep your job Or if you can be successful in school, if you do not adapt to the ways of the world around you. Commenting on Psalm 1, one author said, From the school playground to the senior care home, we instinctively want to say the same things as the wicked, to laugh at the same jokes as the wicked, to share the same values as the wicked, to make the same life decisions as the wicked. Whatever your age stage of life, ethnicity, or culture, this will be an insidious temptation for you. It will never be easy to march out of step with an insistent world. And yet blessing comes to the one who emphatically does not march to the beat of the world's drum. So as we, we look at the psalm, and I, and I know that this is a church that loves to read and to preach and to sing the psalms. That's one, been something that uh, I've enjoyed so much learning from your, one of your pastors. The first thing that we see in this psalm is the walk of the righteous. Verse 1 reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The first word of the psalm is blessed. And that reminds us of the first words when Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down to teach his disciples to pray. He said, blessed. To be blessed is to experience the ongoing favor and grace of God. It's the spiritual condition of those who are in a right relationship with the Lord. In this psalm, the Lord identifies himself by his personal name. Verse 2 and again in verse 6 identify the Lord as Yahweh. And this is his covenant name. And so this psalm is for people who have experienced his deliverance. The people who generations earlier he brought out of Egypt and slavery and delivered them into the promised land. So as we think about what it means to be blessed we shouldn't think of it as how to gain salvation. The psalmist is instructing God's people about how they will continue to experience the favor and the goodness of God. He's describing what their actions ought to be as God's people. Psalm 1 describes this blessed 
person or these blessed people by telling them first what they do not do. And this is common in, in wisdom literature in the Old Testament to teach by way of contrast. And so there are three things in verse 1 that a blessed man doesn't do. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And he doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. And the author is using a a literary technique of, of escalation to warn us of the dangers of these things that he's describing. The first place we see escalation is in the verbs that are there in verse 1. We see that the verbs are to walk, to stand, and to sit. Walk is a a common word in the Old Testament and the New to describe the character of our life before the Lord. So in Exodus 18.20, Moses is instructed by God to warn Israel and to say about all the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. And in Ephesians, Paul tells the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And here, the psalmist warns us against walking in the counsel of the wicked. And so to enjoy the blessing of the Lord, we must not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What does it mean for us to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Well, it's to follow the pattern or teaching of those who are opposed to God. It is to seek their wisdom and to live by their values. You cannot live under the blessing of God if you are walking in the counsel of the wicked. Now, does this mean that you shouldn't learn from your non-Christian boss at work? Or that you shouldn't listen to a non-Christian teacher in your school? Not at all. It's possible for us to learn from a non-Christian that's placed over us without adopting their values or following in their ways. You can learn from your boss at work who doesn't know the Lord. But this warning should alert us to the dangers. If your boss practices wickedness and wants you to be their protege, that's a red flag. And if your teacher moves beyond teaching math and history and wants you to affirm or participate in things that the Word of God identifies as wickedness, then we cannot follow in that way. If you're seeing a therapist or getting counsel from a non-Christian family member and they instruct you to act out on your sinful desires, then you need to reject their counsel and to remove yourself from their influence. And these are not easy decisions or things to do, especially when the relationships involved are close ones. I've felt the difficulty of this. And many times these decisions aren't black and white. And so the Word of God instructs us not to make these decisions in isolation, just considering our own counsel. But you should seek wisdom from within the body of Christ, from an elder or a small group leader, or someone whose walk in the Lord you would want to emulate. And parents, we need to guard carefully who has influence over our children. Parents should not allow their children to walk in the counsel of the wicked so that they would adopt their values and follow their lifestyle.
The second verb is, is stand. We're warned not to stand in the way of sinners. And, and this moves beyond walking, and it indicates a more settled relationship with sin. To stand in the way of sinners means to align yourself with the worldview of those who are settled in sin. So we're moving beyond just listening to counsel and we're aligning ourselves with someone who is settled in sin. And we cannot experience the blessing or goodness of God if we are standing alongside those who are settled in their sin. One biblical example of this, maybe one that stands out more than any other, is Abraham's nephew, Lot. First, Remember when he chose which way to go, he chose the way that made sense to the world. He walked in the counsel of the wicked. And then he settled in in cities that were well known for their sinful practices. And so we are warned not to stand in the way of sinners or to align ourselves with those who are in contradiction to God's word. And so I invite you to ask yourself, are you aligning yourselves with those who are hardened to sin? Not just those who sin, because everybody in the world, even in the church, sins, but are you aligning yourself with those who are hardened in their sin? Are you placing yourself in proximity to those who will tempt you to sin? These things, these influences, aren't neutral on our hearts. You cannot stand on your own, in synchronization with hardened sinners, and not be influenced. So the final warning is against sitting in the seat of mockers. And sitting indicates the most settled or the most serious relationship of those three actions that the psalmist has warned us about. In the ancient world, people sat down to teach, and they sat down to enact judgment. And so to sit in the seat of scoffers is to join with those who mock the word of God. It's to set yourself up in judgment over the word of God. And this happens when people say things like, it's time to move beyond the Bible. Or, I know what the Bible says, but I just have my own ways that I understand things. So do you have friends or family who scoff at the word of God, do not join them. Do not take part in their mockery. Be especially cautious of people who identify themselves as Christians, yet call into question the clear teachings of Scripture. Be cautious of those people who would say, I'm a Christian, yet I reject that which is written in the Word of God. And this is happening more and more. So we pay attention to that pattern at the opening of Psalm 1. Walking, standing, and sitting. It's it's showing us the increased danger of those things. One of them leads to the next. Rarely does someone move from trusting God's Word to rejecting it altogether. That doesn't happen very often. Usually it follows a pattern of listening to ungodly counsel and then joining in sinful actions and then rejecting the word of God altogether. 
And I say this with grief. There were friends that I grew up with and went into the ministry with who have followed this pattern exactly. And as a youth pastor, I saw many of my former students walk the road that is described here for us in Psalm 1. And this same pattern of escalation is present with the people that the psalmist warns us against. He moves from the wicked, meaning those who practice or sin sometimes, to sinners, those who are settled in their sin, and then to scoffers, those who mock and openly reject the Word of God. That pattern is present there as well. So how can we enjoy the blessing of God? After showing us what not to do in verse 1, we have the positive instruction in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. God blesses his people when they meditate on and joyfully submit to his word. And verse 2 stands in stark contrast to verse 1. The blessed man will not follow in the way of the wicked, but he will delight in the law of the Lord. So when this psalm was written, the law of the Lord usually referred to the Torah, to the first five books of the Bible. And referring to the Old Testament scriptures, the Apostle Paul said that they are useful for teaching, rebuking, encouraging, and training in righteousness, and even able to make us wise unto salvation. But the law of the Lord also draws our attention to the Ten Commandments. Delighting in God's law and meditating on it means that we will be recalling and considering the law that God has revealed. Now, within the church, we understand that the law of the Lord, which we delight in and meditate on, is not just the first five books or the Ten Commandments, but it's the entirety of God's Word. The law is still good. Jesus said that He didn't come to abolish it, but in Christ we see the fulfillment of it. And so we strive to bring all of our lives into conformity with God's Word. And the psalmist uses two words to describe our relationship with God's Word. He uses the words delighting and meditating. And these are words that maybe are perhaps used a little less frequently when we discuss our relationship with God's Word. Often I'll hear people talking about reading God's Word, studying God's Word, even preaching God's Word or listening to it. And, and all of these are good, and I would say amen to. But the psalmist is speaking of delighting in the law of God and meditating on it day and night. To delight in God's Word is to find joy in it. Joy as we read. Joy as we grow in our understanding. And joy as we bring our lives into conformity with it. What comes to your mind when you think of delighting in something? I think of the way that new parents are captivated by the way their young child does everything for the first time. Do you know what I'm referring to? The first time their child rolls over, they want to make it big news, 
right? Or, or the first time that they smile or, or their first steps. Parents take joy in the growth of their young child. They delight in it. And God's people will have a similar response to his word. If Jesus were to ask you if you wanted to leave him, would you join with the disciples in saying, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and you say that because you delight in his word. Would you respond like the crowds who heard his teaching, saying, we never heard someone teach like this. This is a delight to our hearts. Maybe you've never felt like that when you've come to God's word. Maybe delighting in his word is a concept that's foreign to you. How can you delight in God's word? Well, first, it's only possible for those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. To delight in God's word means that we will have the Spirit of God inclining our heart to his word. Only those who have seen the glory of Christ and experienced his salvation will delight in his word. Jesus said that those who rejected him did so because his word found no place in them. So if you want to delight in God's word, but you find no desire for that in your heart, then consider that maybe you've never trusted in Christ in the first place. But delighting in God's word is also something that needs to be cultivated, something that we're trained in. We cultivate a heart that delights in God's word by fellowshipping with others who delight in his word. We develop this heart by repenting of sin and pursuing righteousness. Psalm 119 says, incline my heart to your testimonies. Do you hear that plea of the psalmist? Incline, he's asking God to help him move his heart towards the word of God. And the psalm goes on and says, and not to selfish gain, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So it's something that has to be cultivated. If we delight in God's word, then naturally we will find ourselves meditating on it. When the psalmist speaks of meditating on God's word, what he has in mind is memorizing it and recalling it throughout the day. Dwelling on it in your mind and in your words as you go throughout the regular actions of your life. Meditation was not something that was condensed to a 10-minute to a time where someone would try and empty their minds of, of all things, but it takes place as we fill our minds with God's Word and as we go throughout our everyday lives of shopping and working and changing diapers and preparing meals and washing laundry. God desires for us to meditate on his word throughout the ordinary, everyday aspect of our life because it is our delight. And the result of of the word in our hearts in this way is that we bear good fruit and that the blessing of God is on his people. Look at verse 3. It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields it fruit in seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Those who delight in the word of God are like trees planted by streams of water. And and when you hear of a tree planted by streams of water, what comes to your mind in Scripture? Eden, right? 
that there, was, there were trees there that God had planted and rivers that flowed through it. God provided abundantly for the needs of his people there so that they would flourish and enjoy his blessing. And he had given them his word. And if they had delighted in it and meditated on it, then they would have rejected the temptation that came to them. So walking righteously and delighting in the law of the Lord leads to bearing good fruit. It leads to spiritual flourishing. And God fulfills his promises. This doesn't mean that if we obey God, we'll be rich in things of this world. The prosperity there is is not in health and wealth. But it's the promise of spiritual, eternal flourishing. And this is a precious promise. Because delighting in his word means that we can bear fruit even when we suffer. Even when we go through trials. This promise of the Lord's stands firm. And so the psalm moves from describing the walk of the righteous person or the blessed person to describing the way of the wicked. And this brings us to verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but like chaff that the wind drives away. So we've seen the way of the wicked uh, as the psalmist contrasted the blessed man with it. And so he doesn't need to give us a, a new detailed description here, but rather he tells us that the wicked are not like those who meditate on and delight in God's word. Once again, he's using contrast to teach us. So sin is the result of not delighting in God's word. Let's keep in mind that the garden imagery, and so to delight in God's word and meditate on it would mean rejecting the temptations of the serpent, not eating the tree. The question from the serpent then came was, has God said? Right? And and to those who, who dwell on and delight in God's word faithfully, they would say, yes, God has said. But instead, Adam and Eve listened to the lies of the serpent. They walk in the counsel of the wicked. They stood in the way of sinners, believing the lie that God was withholding good from them. And finally, they sat in the seat of those who scoff at God. They took the fruit and ate, and Eve encouraged or taught her husband to do the same. And what's the result? They were driven away like chaff, just like the psalmist Writes. They were driven out of the garden, away from the presence of God. So we see that rejecting the word of God leads to being driven away or being alienated from him. Some claim that rejecting God's standards has led them to, to greater acceptance, greater flourishing. But it's actually the opposite that's true. Blessing and flourishing are found in obedience to God's word, not throwing it off not moving beyond it. So before we move on, I want you to see that the word that the Scripture uses to describe those who persist in disobedience to God's law. I want us to see that word, because it's a stark one. Verse 4 calls them wicked. Those who reject God's authority and teach others to do the same are described as wicked. 
And it's not a word that we like to use, is it? Wicked? We prefer softer words that might not cut a strong offense. It's more acceptable to use words like affirming or alternative lifestyles. And some Christians would teach that you can be personally opposed to something, but not want to impose your views on others. But God calls it wickedness to reject his word and to affirm things that are contrary to it. And so we must not blur the lines that God has made clear. We should see wickedness for what it is and identify it as such. We should do so using the words of Scripture, not belligerently, not to win an argument or to score points, but to uphold the truth. Psalm 1 closes by showing us the end result of these two ways. Thinking back to the poem, it said that he chose the one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. And in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 1, we see the judgment of God on these two ways. We read, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. So Psalm 1 is not just historical. It's not just telling us what happened in the past. It's telling us the things that are to come. It's actually eschatological. And by that, I mean that it's pointing us forward to the final judgment. The psalm closes by anticipating, by looking forward to the time that God will judge the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who reject God as king and refuse to obey his word will not stand in the final judgment. They will not share in the blessing that God has prepared for those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5 says that those who persist in sin will not be a part of the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will not be numbered amongst Christ's people in the final judgment. Instead, they will perish. And verse 4 describes them as chaff that will be driven away. And actually, John the Baptist echoed those same words when he pronounced judgment. This is what John the Baptist said. He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there is judgment for those who persist in rejecting God's law and even standing in opposition to it. Conversely, verse 6 tells us that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Isn't that a sweet promise, church? that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Uh, and, and knowledge in Scripture, we know this just doesn't refer to an intellectual knowledge, but it's relational. The Lord knows his own. Jesus said, my sheep recognize my voice. So in the final judgment, the Lord will say, will identify those who are his own. To some he will say, I never knew you, but to those who have trusted in him and delighted in his law, he will welcome them into his presence. And they will be welcomed into his presence, not because of their own righteousness, 
but because of the one who came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus rejected the counsel of the wicked. He didn't stand in the seat of scoffers. Whereas our first parents gave in to temptation, Jesus defeated temptation. He delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it when he was tempted. And he defeated the one once and for all who tempted us at the cross. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and his righteousness is granted to all those who place their faith in him. So as we close and as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you to delight in the law of the Lord. Do not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Trust this, Christian. The word of Christ will not fail you. It will not fail you. Even in suffering, you can be blessed and bear good fruit by meditating on and delighting in the law of the Lord. It will bear fruit in its season, in the Lord's timing. We will see it bear fruit. And we can trust this because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Psalm 1 sets apart the congregation of the righteous from the wicked. And the Lord's Supper is a time of worshipful response for those who through faith in Christ are among the congregation of the righteous. Each of us has walked at times in our life in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners. Because of the sins that we have committed, we rightly deserve to be driven away like chaff. Yet through faith in Christ, God has made us righteous. He has done that through the work of Christ on the cross. And those who have placed their faith in him are numbered among the righteous and will dwell with him among the saints. The bread that we are about to share is a symbol of the body of Christ, which was broken for us. As he took our sins onto his body, he experienced the judgment for sin and separation from his father. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And the cup is a symbol of his blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said that this is the cup symbolizes the new covenant into his blood, which is poured out for you. So this table is open to those who are members in good standing of a Protestant gospel preaching church. However, if you have unconfessed sin, or if you have relationships that are in need of reconciliation with others within this body, it would be appropriate to refrain from sharing in these elements until after confessing those sins. To participate in an unworthy manner would be to dishonor the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus has made. Yet even more than refraining from participating in these things, how much better of it would this be a time for you to confess the sins to the Lord, trusting in his promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to invite the elders who are going to serve to come forward at this time. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is your table, and you have prepared it for your people. We share in the bread which represents your body, 
and the cup which represents your blood poured out for us. Would we treasure the good news of the gospel as we share in this as a church? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.